The most simple mistake people make is just dividing stuff up equally. You know, you've got five people and you just say, oh, five people, we all like each other, we all get 20%. Um, that always, almost 100% leads to issues down the line because you've got people doing all the work, um, people putting in all the money, and then you've got one or two people that don't do anything and don't put in any money and don't participate in meetings. People start getting frustrated with, with that agreement. So I think upfront is really important to kind of lay out what exactly people are going to do, what their roles and responsibilities are going to be. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today I get to talk to Seth Bradley, a securities attorney, an investor, a syndicator, a fund creator, and someone who's now actively investing in startups and all kinds of things. So we're going to be able to dive into a lot of questions that you guys might be having about how to go big and maybe how to go big without having to go to jail or going broke or all these kinds of things that people might might be facing today in the changing market. Seth, thank you so much for, for joining us today. What uh, specifically would you say you've learned from being on the attorney security side that maybe someone that hasn't been on there wouldn't know? Yeah, I mean, the main thing really is, is that I was, I, I don't I wouldn't say shocked, but for sure, I'm a little bit alarmed by the amount of capital raising that's going on um, in some sort of a, an illegal form. You know, you've got this, this busted co-GP model where people are getting paid like broker dealers to raise capital. And as most of your listeners probably know, you're not allowed to do that. You need a license to do that. Just like being a doctor or a dentist, um, you need to have a license to raise capital. And there are obviously some, a lot of nuances to that, but just generally speaking, it's, it's kind of crazy the amount of capital raising going on out there that's, that's done in an improper way. What are the consequences of raising capital in an improper way? Um, it's really, well, so the reason it hasn't been a huge deal, and I say that meaning, you know, you haven't seen a lot of consequences because real estate's been so good, right? Since whenever, for, for 12 years, we've been on a bull run. So everything's been great. Investors have gotten their money back and then some, so everybody's happy. So nobody's really saying, hey, SEC, I don't think these guys are doing it the right way or, you know, starting lawsuits or anything like that. So everything's been great. Um, you're starting to see that change a little bit right now, right? Like, you know, there's capital calls going on. There's, you know, softening of the market. And it's just, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a weird time where you might start seeing some of these things pop up and some of these structures that people have put together where co-GPs are getting paid to raise capital and not do anything else. Um, it, it's turning into a, it, it could potentially turn into a, a major issue if this market continues to kind of stay stagnant. Um, consequences are you really have to repay all your investors their capital back plus interest. Um, and you can imagine, you know, if you're raising a million dollars or raising $10 million, and then all of a sudden you get hit with that bill and your property's not going well, because you got to think about it that way. If, if something's going on where you're getting investigated, your property probably isn't performing like it should be. So you don't have that capital to get back and you are, you are SOL. And so, so what happens when you can't pay it back? Well, it's just like anything else. It's just like getting, getting sued, um, you know, and you don't have any money. It, you know, your credit goes to crap, bankruptcy, all the above. Um, you know, SEC will put penalties on you where you won't be able to raise capital for one year, five years, 10 years, forever. Um, it really just depends on the amount of um, issues that, that you violated. 
Yeah, and one of the reasons that I have chosen not to go into the big capital raising syndication just is because of the SEC regulation, right? It obviously can be very intense. Like you even hear words thrown around like, well, if you don't raise it right, you go to jail. Can you talk about that? Like when does something usually cross over into just civil versus, you know, maybe beyond that? Yeah, I mean, like I said, there, there's sanctions that the SEC will put on you as far as, um, you know, re- repaying that, that investor capital back plus interest and then also penalties as far as you being able to raise capital in the future. But as far as going to jail, you have to do something pretty egregious, right? Like that's kind of an exaggeration, like, you know, how to raise capital without going to jail. It's just kind of a uh, kind of a clickbait statement, right? Like unless you're fraudulent or, you know, you've severely misrepresented what you're doing or you've mishandled investor funds in a way that, that you know, you know, you're doing something wrong, then you may end up doing jail time for it. But it takes, you know, some egregious penalties. And I've, I've seen that happen as well. I mean, even recently, there have been a, a few different things that I've I've caught some wind about um, where it's it's straight up fraud or a Ponzi scheme or something like that. So let's talk about the market itself, because like you said, the market has been on a bull run, but it obviously is very different now. Deal flow is very different. So how are you personally adjusting to the, the market changes? Yeah, I mean, personally, I've had to adjust my business model. Um, I've mentioned before the podcast, um, I was a GP on 14 deals last year, wasn't really doing a lot of, you know, straight legal work. Um, I do have my own law firm, but I was I just I was so busy with my own deals. I didn't have time to to take on any other work. Um, But this year, you know, there's deals trickling in here and there. There's some some really good operators that are still transacting. Um, So I'm forming some funds, doing some syndications for people um, rather than my own. Um, which I don't really love doing, to be honest with you. I'd rather be kind of on the equity, the business side, rather than just the straight vendor side. Um, but that's kind of how I've adjusted my business. And I've also transitioned into uh, taking this opportunity to get involved with some startups. Um, a lot of them, well, a lot of them, there's three of them. Um, they have a real estate flavor to them. So I'm, I'm kind of taking on an advisory and CLO role with those companies. Yeah. And, and so that way, I mean, essentially you're helping them create funds for those businesses, raise capital, et cetera. Kind of give me some basic ideas of what you're doing for these startups. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not necessarily just creating funds or raising capital, you know, with one that is, and then with others, you know, the, the capital raising process itself and how to source capital and debt and all those things. It's really kind of the CFO role. I'm really the CLO role. So a, a lot of these folks are outsourcing their, their uh, legal work to third parties, and I'm really just handling all that stuff in-house. Um, they're at different stages in development, whether we're doing a reg CF fund or pre-seed or pre-seed series A, um, there are different stages. So handling really all the internal legal work in, in two out of three companies I was involved with um, very early on. So I'm really a co-founder that's also an attorney. So I'm handling the legal work just because I can. And so essentially, instead of starting some major fees to these companies, you're probably coming in from for an equity stake to be able to help them structure it all. That's right. And I, and I and when we get into the fundraising rounds with certain things, I mean, I can handle, you know, we still need a registered portal for a Reg CF fund. Um, as you know, like if we do a, a Reg A plus fund, that can cost 50 to 100,000 bucks um, in attorney's fees alone. I can handle that internally for a startup company. That's, you know, a major chunk of change, um, major savings. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some some benefits to having uh, a securities attorney on board when you're, when you're trying to raise capital. So talking about that, I mean, obviously you get the insight in a lot of these businesses that are startups. Like, so you, you obviously get to learn a lot of the mechanics and, and what's working. 
you know, you hear a lot of like, you know, people from the Shark Tank and other places saying that most businesses fail. So how are you underwriting, analyzing the businesses you get involved with? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough, right? Like there's, there's these different development stages. I mean, you may, a lot of them don't have a product. Like they just have a, a prototype or an idea. And, you know, you're a long ways away from going public with that particular company. So like even when you're putting out projections and, and drafting a pro forma and, and trying to, you know, start talking to investors about whether or not they want to invest. I mean, these numbers to me, you know, because I come from the real estate world where there's a hard asset and there's something, you know, you can see how much cash is generating and what the expenses are. You know, it's a totally different world because we're, we're just pulling numbers out of thin air. Basically, we're saying, okay, like, here's the product that we plan on building that we haven't built yet. And this is how many sales that we think we can get in year one and in year all the way up to year five. And these are the expenses and the people that we think we're going to hire in the next five years. And here's these projections on, you know, a hundred X multiple is what this company is going to be worth in two, three, four, five years. It's pretty insane. And it's a different mindset shift, but I love kind of the potential and, and I love the, um, the excitement behind, you know, valuing a, com a company uh, based on how great of an idea you might or might not have. So as you pursue down this path, I mean, what's been the obstacle for you? Has it been getting enough ideas presented to you, like meeting those people? Is it, is it really, uh, or is it like you have everybody in the world wants to pitch you and you got to pick the right ones? Um, I, you know, the biggest challenge for me is just, again, that, that kind of mindset shift. I, I'm used to dealing with hard assets where there's just, you know, we've got numbers. We, we, can, we can do a, a, you know, pull some market data, figure out like what we can raise rents to, we can figure out, you know, what the property management's going to cost, what fees we're going to charge, and you know, it's done, right? Like, obviously, there's some nuances to that, and your assumptions matter. But with a startup company, depending on how far along you you are, I mean, these numbers are just, you know, they're not solid. They're they're just they're just really true projections as to where we think we're going to take it. But things change, and we're probably not going to be anywhere near that because the business plan is going to change. The people we bring on is going to change. If we put out a, a minimum viable product and 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 it works to a certain extent, and we've got to tinker it with it a little bit, it, everything's going to change along the way. So we got to just stay, um, we got to stay nimble and be able to to pivot. So how how do you make decisions? Then? I mean, with everything being projections, how, how do you make decisions on which ones you partner with? Um, well, that, I think that's one thing where there's some overlap with, let's say, a real estate syndication or a fund. Um, you're really, you're betting on the jockey, right? Like you, you're, you're trying to find the co-founders or the founders or the CEO or the fund manager or the uh, lead sponsor that has integrity, that is smart, intelligent, and has a track record of success because that's ultimately going to matter more than some of the other things. Like with a syndication, you know, of course the deal matters matters of course the market matters but the the lead sponsors who's actually executing the business plan that's who's who's going to matter um same thing with with these um startups the the team and the the foundational team and the co-founders you know their vision of where they think they can take it um i think matters a lot less than the product itself now the product does of course matter there has to be um demand for that product there has to be a market for it um, but, you know, in an in a environment where you've got to be nimble and you've got to change quickly and pivot, you know, you can, especially with the things that are developing with, with AI and, um, and blockchain technology and those sorts of things, you've got to be able to 
absorb these new technologies, these new tools that we have and implement them into your product. And again, that product might change from what it is today to a year from now. Yeah. Being an attorney, you have a unique perspective on how to structure companies, how to do operating agreements, et cetera. Like, can you tell us a little bit about like, what are some of maybe the mistakes people make in their operating agreements or what are some things that they could do a lot better? Yeah. Um, I, I think that the most simple mistake people make is just dividing stuff up equally. You know, you've got five people and you just say, Oh, five people, we all like each other. We all get 20%. Um, that always almost a hundred percent leads to issues down the line because you've got people doing all the work, um, people putting in all the money. And then you've got one or two people that don't do anything and don't put in any money and don't participate in meetings. And then it's all good at the beginning because everybody's excited and they want to start a business. But then later down the road, it gets hard to run a business that's successful. And that's when you start looking at other people like, man, like I'm, I'm putting all this time in, I put all my, my own capital in, like, why isn't, why isn't this guy helping me out? Like he should be, he's, he's working full time at his job and making good money and, you know, going on vacation and I'm sitting here slaving away. Um, you know, people start getting frustrated with, with that agreement. So I think upfront is really important to kind of lay out what exactly people are going to do, what their roles and responsibilities are going to be. Um, and just try to anticipate it. Of course, things are going to change, but do your best to anticipate who's going to do what and how that, that, you know, partnership really evolves um, over time. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. So how do people without a lot of industry experience, how do people understand the, like the value of each role? Like as I built out a real estate team, I started to see like, okay, sales should account for about this much of a P&L and, and operations about this much. So, I mean, for me, it was a, a multiple year iteration process to understand value. If I had created a team from the very beginning, I'd have no clue. Uh, right. how, how can people skip that learning curve to understand what the value of each section of the business is worth? Yeah. I mean, the best way is to talk to people like you, right? Like you've already made mistakes. You've already been through it. You've already built the team. You've already kind of seen what changes over time in that first year and wh where the value lies within the team members. So I think it comes down to the power of your network, the power of your you know, mentor or coaching or whatever it is, wherever you, wherever you get your knowledge from trying to learn from those folks before you actually make those mistakes. So you obviously as a securities attorney, we're probably making some pretty good money. 
Um, and a lot of times people that make really good money can fall into a, a trap of being in jobs that maybe they love or don't love, but, but are trapped in this high income. What was that like for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it's difficult, man. Um, because you're making good money, right? Especially at a big law firm, it, it's kind of on this lockstep. So like every year you make X amount of dollars more, you know, when you get to your second year, you're going to make this much. When you get to your third year, you're going to make this much and so on and so forth. So you're like, man, you look down the line, you're like, wow, by my eighth year, I'm going to make $400,000 a year or $600,000 a year or whatever it is. And it's, and they're dangling that carrot. It's really tough to get off of that, that treadmill once you start. I mean, just like anybody else's job as well. You know, you get a little incremental raise and you're happy for a minute and then you're miserable and you're like, man, I need paid more. And then they pay you a little bit more and you're like, ah, oh, that's not enough, but it's enough for me to stay. It's, it's kind of that, that just hamster wheel that you get on. And then of course, the more money you make, the more money you spend, right? I call that the golden handcuffs. I mean, it's just, everybody does it. It's, it's human nature, um, unfortunately. So unless you're really disciplined in not doing it, then you're, you, you just naturally kind of do it. Like, you know, I remember when I got my first big law job, I did it immediately. I bought a brand new 550i BMW and I was like, I made it. This is great. This is awesome. Like I've, I've got this awesome car. I've got this awesome job. I made it. And I've got, now I've got this big bill that I've got to pay for, right? That comes every single month and now I'm stuck with it. Um, side note, I still have that car though. I kept it <laughs> and I, it's 2011 and I still have it. I still drive it because my mindset has changed. Now I'm like, it's paid off. It gets me where I need to go. It still looks pretty good. We're good to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, you need to be really disciplined on kind of your spending habits so that you start taking that active income, the, the ancillary active income that you make and put it into passive income streams or side business or, you know, whatever it is that, that you want to do basically some way to create a second, third, fourth, and fifth stream of income. So you're not just stuck on that, that in the rat race with, with one active income stream. And so for you, like, what was the numerical point? Like, like, I mean, obviously you kind of mentioned, like, how did you boil that decision down? And, and when were you like, okay, I'm leaving? Yeah. Um, I got involuntarily shown the door. Um, that was okay. kind of the big, that was the big changing point for me. I, I, you know, I was into syndications at that point. I was into passive investing, active investing. I had, you know, I was flipping houses. I was in residential real estate too. I was, I was doing all the stuff. I started a a side business with my wife where we bought into a franchise and we got, we have two gyms now. I was not billing the hours I should have been billing. My mind was not on the job like I should have been. And when you're trying to bill, you know, 2,500 hours a year at a big law firm, that's really all you have time for. I mean, you have, you have time to do that and do it well and have your mind set on that at all times. And outside of that, if it's not, then you're not going to be performing at the level that you should be. And I look back and I'm, you know, I didn't perform how I should have performed. I didn't build the hours I needed to bill. My mind was, you know, somewhere else on my own businesses. So I totally understand how the decision came to be made. Um, but yeah, and, and I got shown the door. And at that point in time, you know, I had that initial moment of, of panic that I think most people would have and a little bit of like, man, I'm a failure. Like, I can't believe I got fired. You know, I've been a high achiever for a long time and getting fired. You're just like, what? How could you possibly get fired? What a loser. Um, and then it's like, okay, I'm going to start getting on LinkedIn and searching for the next job. But then after, you know, you settle down, you start thinking about it, it's like, you know, I've, I've already got all these other assets. I've already got these, you know, these side hustles that I'm already working on. At that point, you just kind of calm down. You're like, I don't, I don't need this job anymore. 
Like it's a lot of money, but I don't need it. Like, let's, let's see this thing through. So I did have, I did start my own law firm at that point in time, but I just had, you know, a few clients here and there, but for the most part, it was based on real estate and, and side hustles. Love it. And so essentially you're doing what a lot of millennials are, are doing, right? Which is essentially the quiet quitting, right? Where you're, I mean, 2,500 billable hours. I mean, that's no joke. I mean, that's 50 hours a week and that's just billable hours, right? So, I mean, how many right. hours a week would you need to work to bill 50 hours a week? I mean, you probably lose, if you're really efficient with your time, you're, you're going to lose, you know, 25% of your time. And that's being really efficient. You know, I mean, you're there all the time. I mean, you're working late nights. It's frowned upon if you leave before, you know, your superior partner or, you know, senior associate or whoever it is that's, that's your boss at that point in time. You can't leave until they leave. You got to be in the office before they get there. And you've got to be efficient with your time. And if you're not really efficient, you're not going to hit those billables. Like it's, it's insane. It's a lot of pressure and every six minutes of your time is written down and recorded. So it's, it's kind of the, the apex of trading your time for money because you have to record every six minutes of what you do. <laughs> so I want to dive into this because I think time auditing is a very valuable thing for people who are finding that their time is just going to the wind. Obviously every six minutes is pretty excessive, but can you talk to me about like system systematically? I mean, how, how was your time track? Were you tracking it? Was it an assistant tracking it? Um, you know, at the time when I was billing, it was, you know, you've got a clock, you've got like an app on your, on your, um, on your computer, you've got one on your phone. And then you, I really just use a paper time tracker because it's the only way I could keep track of all this, right? Like we've got a sheet that I write down every single day. It's like, okay, six minutes to this client matter number, 12 minutes to this client matter number, two hours to this. Like it's, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, ridiculous when it's something that you don't care about, right? Like that's me working for somebody else. Now, if you're doing it for yourself and you're like, all right, I need to be more productive with my time. I need to time block. Um, I need to make my schedule. I need to do the hard things first. And the first two hour, hours of my day, I'm going to get these major things on my list out of the way. That's a little bit different um, than when you're billing hours to some client that, you know, your senior partner has and you don't really care about. The only reason you care about it is so you don't get fired. So let's talk about like, you know, when kids, you know, are growing up, your parents make you clean your room and whatever. And sometimes when you get out of the house, you're like, I ain't cleaning my room anymore. You know, you get that sense of freedom for you with, in regards to time tracking, was it like that? Or were you immediately like, I see the value in this. I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, yeah, I was done with it. I mean, completely done with it. <laughs> and then even when I take on clients now, like we, I work out a flat fee, like I, I won't even work for billable hours. I'm like, let's figure out what's a fair number. If it's over, it's under, it is what it is. We're going to figure out a number for it. Cause I'm not keeping track of my, my billable hours for this. Um, so it was like, no, <laughs> so this is really, really interesting. So uh, is it fair to say a hundred percent of your work is on, is on flat fee? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I just, I was just in Alaska with some really epic dudes and one of them was an attorney, great guy. And he's like, dude, there's Matt, there's no way to go f straight flat fee. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me about some of the things that had to happen in order to make that work? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on where you're, what you're doing too. It depends on what kind of law you're practicing. Um, you know, for me, I'm forming these funds, right? And of course, they can get more complicated. Of course, things happen along the way during the capital raises that you might need some some additional advisory on. But for the most part, I can I can judge to a certain extent what I need, what kind of paralegal hours I need behind me to to help me out with with some of the document drafting. So it's a little bit easier for me because I I think the more narrower your the more narrow your scope is of work, um, the more you can probably uh, do a flat fee rather than hourly. And my scope is pretty 
set at this point. I mean, it's either a single property syndication or it's going to be, you know, a fund with multiple properties, or it might be, you know, an open fund or closed fund. But um, for the most part, it's it's pretty set. So I can charge a flat fee. And there's a lot of securities attorneys that do the same thing. If, if you get into securities, um, if you're dealing with kind of boutique shops like like mine, you can get flat fees. If you're working with, you know, a large, you know, a, a huge law firm, they might do a flat fee, but it's going to be really tough. Um, Cause they're also going to say, well, we're going to do a flat fee for let's say the document drafting, but if you need any kind of counsel on this, 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 or this, or there's any kind of hiccup, we're going to charge you a thousand dollars an hour. Um, so it's a little bit more difficult to do, especially with larger law firms. Yeah. hundred percent. So I want to ask you a philosophical question. So a philosophical question goes like this, right? Like a lot of people who are in these types of things wish they were an attorney because they would have the knowledge they could do it themselves, but you having been through the whole ranks, if you had to go back and start from scratch, would you become an attorney again? I would. I would. Um, and just to kind of rewind, I went to med school first. I didn't finish it, but I went to med school. I got my MBA and then I went to law school. So I've been to like all these schools. And for one, I don't even, I don't have any kids, but if I did, I, I wouldn't tell them they needed to go to college. Like my mindset has shifted. But as far as what being an attorney has done for me, it's it's got so much overlap with what I do in my business as far as raising capital, as far as real estate and startups and entrepreneurship like i use the knowledge that i gleaned from even from law school and really along the way working in big law firms every single day so i, I certainly would not um not do that if i had to rewind yeah awesome and and so tell us like what does the vision look like for you moving forward yeah i mean i think for me it's really two-pronged um i love real estate like it's all i think about pretty much every single day like i love hard assets and, and real estate. So that's always going to be something I'm going to keep chopping away at all times. We're always going to be doing more deals, getting equity, taking down properties. And I've explored different types of things. I mean, I've done everything, fix and flips, short-term rentals, 300-unit apartment complexes, all that. I'm not saying we're going to go in any certain direction there, but I, I love real estate. There's always going to be that, that part of me. Um, but more recently in the last couple of years with the startups, I love having developing a company, developing a product and, you know, that kind of home run aspect of it. I, I get really enamored with that, right? Like I, I like the idea of consistent cash flow and, you know, building your wealth over time, which is to me what real estate represents. But then if you can also kind of have these home run, potential home run hitters in your back pocket that you can work on, that's, I, I like having that incredible upside too. So how do you balance, I mean, because you're essentially giving your time more or less for free as a part of this equity play, right? Which is, I mean, it really comes into the question of how much do I go for the home runs and how much do I take care of myself today? How do you balance that conversation? What are you doing today, if anything, to to pay your basic bills or your basic lifestyle versus hitting the home runs? Yeah. So, I mean, the real estate deals and when I'm forming funds like that, plus my, my gyms that I have, those kind of give me the steady cash flow slash, you know, chunks of money I need to, to live comfortably. And at this point I have enough contacts and my network's big enough where I can kind of turn that on and off. Like if I, if I want to do more funds, I can do more funds. I just don't love doing it. And I don't really have, I don't really want to build a law firm either. So I, I just kind of do it to pay the bills. Um, and it's still building some wealth at the same time. Um, the other things, they do take some time. Um, so it, it is a balance. I, I don't know where that balance is. Um, 
I think that my capacity for doing work is pretty high. Like, even though I don't work for anybody else, I still work a lot. I mean, my wife will tell you, she's like, this guy never has any free time. He doesn't have any hobbies. I'm like, I actually enjoy doing most of this stuff. Like, you know, there's stuff you don't like doing, but for the most part, I enjoy it. I enjoy, I enjoy working. I enjoy building businesses. So it doesn't feel like work all the time for me. Um, so it's, it's a balance, right? Like it's a balance with, with the startups, a balance with cash flow, and it's a balance with, with just trying to enjoy your life too. Well, that's one of the, one of the things I've noticed in interviewing, you know, like close to 400 people now is like, as an entrepreneur, if you don't like what you're doing, you just shift to focus, right? I mean, you've probably done that a number of times in your business where who you're serving, how you're serving them, all that type of thing. So you're just constantly moving into what you want to do. So it's, you're virtually almost always in that place. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's entrepreneurship is all about freedom, right? Like not having a boss, not having to be a certain place at a certain time for a certain length of time with people you don't like being with. Like entrepreneurship is about the freedom to run your business, run your life the way that you want. Even though we're working a ton of ton of hours, maybe more than we would at a W two, at least we have the freedom to to live and to to work. If we, if I want to take tomorrow off, I can move my schedule around and do it. Like I, you know what I mean. Like you just have that that freedom of of doing what you want to do when you want to do it. So, what's your vision for your life and business the next twelve to eighteen months? 12 to 18 months. Um, well, so one of the startups I'm involved with, we'd like to take that to series A. Like that's that's really where we're going. Um, I, I think we can do it in, in six months. We're really close. So that's one of the big goals on my calendar right now. Um, and then we have another product with a different startup that's actually going to private beta testing next week. So really excited to see how quickly we can kind of refine that product and take it to market and, and see where we're at. I'm going to continue to to make offers on real estate though. Like I know the, the market is what it is, but we're constantly making offers. So that'll never stop. Um, love building wealth that way. Um, so those are kind of the, the three major things. Awesome. Well, Seth, thank you so much for coming on and sharing about your life and business. For those of you out there listening, write down something you learned. I mean, obviously one of the things that I took away is just that you can have a very specific skill set that can be applied to a lot of different businesses that can get you into a place where you can have big equity possibilities down the road. But write down something that you learned, share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 